Who is God? Is God real? Can God be known? You say, well, that's funny you would ask those questions because obviously I'm here, so I must believe that God is real and that God can be known. Well, you may. Then again, maybe you're skeptical about it. You may not be sure. But then I'm going to guess maybe you have children and perhaps grandchildren and peers and friends who aren't sure if God exists. And when they think about the Christian view of God, they oftentimes think that we're kind of ignorant, that we just believe for the sake of believing. And so while for you it may be kind of a you know, bump in your shoulders, yeah, I believe, but not really know why you believe, what are you going to do when your kids are challenged by their peers and professors and they have those hard questions they come up with because their professor said that Christians are ignorant. They just believe for the sake of belief. What do you say? How do you answer? Who is God? You know, you ask that question, you get a variety of answers, especially from kids. And I especially like to hear what kids think about God. And I came across some drawings that kids did when they were asked to draw their concept of God. I want to share them with you. In this first one, uh, God is sitting in front of his giant, massive screen of computers. It says, God at the cloud desk. <clears throat> I guess he's keeping an eye on all of us. This one has God in heaven. God's kind of reminding us who he is, and, and he's got a dog and a cat, so God likes pets. This one, uh, the child wrote, I wish God could convince my mom and dad to give me we, Lego Batman and Lego Star Wars like the ones my friend has. So God is kind of a Santa Claus here. This one, uh, you've got the world and, you know, all these kids around the world and adults, and it says, God doesn't sleep because he watches over us all the time. A lot of work for God. My favorite, God lives inside every living thing, so my doctor has seen God when he cuts people open. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but, but this surgeon is scary. <laughs> I don't know if I want him cutting on me. He looks like he's a little too excited, all right? And then this last one, who is God? God is a man that sacrificed himself for us. So, I mean, kids just give amazing answers. And again, the question is, well, who do you believe God is yourself? And it's important, I think, for us to answer that question the right way because we can come at it from lots of perspectives or we can say, you know what? God already has revealed himself. And based on the fact that God has revealed himself, we know what to believe about him. Has God really revealed himself to us? Why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter 1. It's not going to be on the screen. It's too long a passage. And verse 16. So online, you're welcome to join us as well. Open your Bibles up or turn them on to Romans chapter 1. We will start reading at verse 16. The Apostle Paul is writing here. And he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Then we get to verse 18, bad news. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. We were all part of that group at one time. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. 
For instance, or, or for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies to one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So, what Paul, in essence, is saying is that nobody has an excuse not to believe in God. That God has revealed himself. And he says, nature is an example. Look up, look around, look down. It is so obvious God made everything. Don't, don't you get it? God is there. God is real. I guess you could summarize what Paul is saying. And he's saying God is knowable. David even wrote about that in the Old Testament. In Psalm 19 David put it this way. He said, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. So both David and Paul are saying to us, listen, God is knowable because God has revealed himself, his majesty, his glory, his divinity in all of creation. We should recognize that, but not everybody does. There are a lot of people who don't recognize that. There are a lot of people who are materialists. What I mean by that is they don't believe in God. They believe that what we see in creation, life itself, is the result of kind of a random accident. That the right building blocks of life and the right physics took place and the right processes took place, and boom, life happened. And then since then, life has evolved. And oftentimes what they will claim is that science is on their side. Now, is that true? That's what many of your students will hear, maybe what you have heard. Or does science corroborate what God's word has said? And indeed, the universe is finely tuned, and God is behind all of that. Well, more and more, as scientists discover certain aspects about the universe, they're becoming at least convinced that there is some intelligent designer behind what we see and experience, those who are truly willing to be honest and in the know, who are not amateurs but truly professional scientists, Increasingly, especially in the area of physics, are dumbfounded by the inability to say this happened by accident. One of the authors I enjoy reading is a physicist, astrophysicist. His name is Hugh Ross. We're going to put this book, a couple of these books on the website. Later, you can check it out. He wrote a book called The Creator in the Cosmos, How the Latest Scientific Discoveries Reveal God. And Ross in his book says, you know, years ago when science didn't have so many discoveries and such a knowledge of our universe, it was just believed that there's just been enough time, you know, as time has gone on for all these random things to kind of collide and 
mix and match and form what we have as life today. He said, with Hubble and many other new technologies, scientists have come to realize that the universe had a beginning, known as the Big Bang. He said, we can measure the universe now in many different ways and aspects. And one of the things scientists are doing is they're walking away from that. They're going, there hasn't been enough time for life to accidentally be created. And they're starting to kind of backpedal on that. One of those men who's not a Christian, who's passed away now, was Sir Fred Hoyle, a cosmologist in England, rather famous man, who is the person that is given credit for coining the phrase Big Bang. Even he admitted that the idea that the universe just kind of happened, life kind of just happened, is equivalent to believing that a tornado could tear its way through a junkyard and leave behind a perfectly put together 747 when it's ready to fly. It's unimaginable. It's unimaginable to think that life just happened, that there was not some design. It's hard to believe that the universe wasn't created for the purpose of harboring life. Ross goes on and he says, so far scientists have discovered about 35 necessary building blocks in order for life to exist. He said these building blocks are very complicated, very intricate, and they have to fit together in very specific ways. I mean, with such accuracy that the human mind can hardly comprehend it. Take, for instance, electrons and protons. There has to be an exact balance of electrons and protons, down to the accuracy of one part in 10 to the 37th power. That's 10 with 37 zeros behind it. If that's not the case, there's no planets, no stars, no galaxy. And understand what 10 to the 37th power means, because it's really hard for the human mind. He gives kind of an example. He says, imagine covering the, the North American continent with dimes up to the height of the moon. That's 239,000 miles away. That's a lot of dimes. He says, then go find a million more continents the size of North America and pile dimes from them all the way up to the moon. Take one of those dimes, paint it red, stick it in the, all the other dimes, blindfold your best friend, and see if she can pull the red dime out. The chances of that are 1 in 10 to the 37th power. Now take all the other building blocks of life, the other 35, and all the branches of equations that come out from them. Everything, everything has to match precisely with no margin of error, with such exactness that even the skeptical scientists are saying, we just can't explain it other than to say, there's got to be some intelligent design behind what is taking place. One of those skeptics, perhaps one of the best-known atheists, is a man named Anthony Flew. And he wrote a book with somebody called There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And he begins by quoting from Charles Darwin. So here's a notorious atheist who now is willing to say there is a God, though he hasn't really come yet to that point of accepting Christ. And he's quoting from Charles Darwin. And he says, here's what Charles Darwin said. Reason tells me of the extreme difficulty, or rather impossibility, of conceiving this immense and wonderful universe 
including man with his capability of looking for back, far backwards and far into the future, as a result of blind chance or necessity. When thus reflecting, I feel compelled to look to a first cause. Now, this is Darwin, okay? Having an intelligent mind in some degree analogous to that of a man, and I deserve, says Darwin, and I deserve to be called a theist, one who believes in a divine being. Now, how often do you hear that in a science class? Flew goes on to say, this train of thought has been kept alive in the present time in the writings of many of today's leading expositors of science, kind of like the who's who of science. These range from scientists like Paul Davies, John Barrow, John Polkinghorne, Freeman Dyson, Francis Collins, Owen Gingrich, and Roger Penrose, to philosophers of science like Richard Swinburne and John Leslie. Robert Jastrow, a theoretical physicist and agnostic, said, at this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Say, Pastor, why all this whole lesson of physics? Why all, the, you know, why all this stuff? Why all these quotes? Because I want you to know that our belief in God is not a belief caused by ignorance. We just choose to believe. That's what Phidias says. I just believe because I believe. We believe because the overwhelming evidence also points to the fact that there is a God. And even those who don't believe in God are saying, you can't explain the universe without coming up with something, whatever it is. It seems to have put it all together in a way that it's like the, the divine mathematician, the divine physicist, the divine scientist. And it just seems like the universe has been created for the purpose of harboring life, life on this planet. There's so many other exciting things. I encourage you to get those two books and we'll put them on the website and, and, and read them and just be astonished at what people who aren't Christians are saying about our God as they discover more and more. But let, let's move on to there because Paul not only deals with the fact that God is knowable, I jotted this down, even though we are aware of God and Paul believes that we're intuitively aware that God is, and I agree with him, I believe everybody is born with a sense in their mind and hearts that God is. Now, you can extinguish that like you do a candle, you know, when you pinch the light, uh, the fire at the top, but I believe every human being knows that there is a God, that we know we're trespassing on the truth. So even though we are aware of God, he says, what do we do? We suppress the truth about God. We suppress the truth about God. Look what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, yes, they knew God but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think out foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Well, when did this all start? When did this, this suppression of the truth begin? Well, go back to Genesis. We were there a couple of weekends ago, maybe you remember. And I said, the serpent came in the garden. Remember what the serpent did? The serpent went to the woman and the man. He asked a question. He said, did God really say that you may not eat the fruit of the trees of the garden? God never said that. God said, you can eat any of the fruit from the trees of the garden. You just can't eat it from one tree, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. 
But the serpent was really clever and wise. And he posed the question that way, did God really say to get even Adam to judge God and judge God's word? To kind of rise above the Bible, to rise above what God has said, to judge what God had said. And that's how he continues to work today whether it's in our own minds, whether it's through the media, whether it's through education or, or, or even religion. What he wants us to do is he wants us to kind of put ourselves over God and to ask ourselves, in essence, a question like this. I mean, did God, did God really say that? Did God really forbid that? Did God really demand that? I mean, what if you were God? You're a reasonable person. You're a kind person. You're a good person. I mean, would you forbid that? Would you say that's wrong? Would you encourage that? Would you demand that? Would you, would you do that? I mean, if you were God, would you do that? And we start thinking to ourselves, well, if I was God, I probably wouldn't say quite that, or I, I would have maybe said it a little differently, or I, I wouldn't, you know, expect this, or I wouldn't demand that. And then we think to ourselves, well, I'm pretty smart. I'm a good person, and God's a lot smarter than me. A lot, God's a whole lot better than me. Therefore, God must have meant something like what I'm thinking right now. So, Whatever was written down in the Bible must be wrong, and they must have got it wrong, or we're certainly misinterpreting it. And what are we doing? We're now, now we're judging. Now I and my idea of God becomes more important. And we battle that all the time. Every time you justify doing something wrong, been there, done that, we find, we make up reasons. We get God to kind of agree and understand why we're going to say or do what we're going to say or do. Anybody besides me know what that's all about? Yeah. Look what Paul says as we go on another verse. He says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. So we, we tell ourselves lies all the time to justify what we're going to do. So they worshiped and served the things created. That's called idolatry. And by the way, when people create idols, and, and I've been to many countries where they worship idols, all right, idols are simply a projection of what we want our God to be what society decides or our parents decide what God should be. And then we attribute to those idols the ways we think life ought to be lived. So in America, we may not have such physical idols, although that's questionable. Money can become an idol. Sex can become an idol. We have, we have our philosophies about God. They're like invisible idols. And we attribute, we make God the way we want him to be. We attribute to God what we want him to allow. We rewrite the script for God and then we impose it on ourselves and others and say, this is, this is really what life is all about. This is what, what it means to live and know God, and this is how the morality I will live by. So they worship and serve the things created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy and eternal. Amen. So my question then to you is, are you sure, are you sure today that the God you worship, the God who you say is real, is indeed the God who has revealed himself? So let's play a little game and kind of think about that. How many of you want to play a game? Yeah, okay. All right. Kind of awake, all right? So uh, it's a jar full of jelly beans right here. And uh, there's a brand new Corvette in the parking lot. And I'd like, I'd like you to go ahead and write down how many jelly beans you think are in this jar, all right? And imagine if you get it right, you imagine, imagine you win a Corvette, all right? All right? the imaginary Corvette in the parking lot, all right? So write down how many you think are in here. Does it help if I shake it? Does that help a little bit? Okay, good, all right? All right, now let's, uh, let's draw our, our jar of jelly beans 
All right, full of jelly beans here. Okay, now, um, and online can do this as well. Let me hear some numbers out there. All right, I heard 365. 585. 100. Did I hear somebody say 100? All right, all right. Now, everybody be really quiet. I want to hear from the balcony. 127, I'll take that, okay? I think I heard that. Was it 127? All right. Oh, one more, 450. I got to stop there, okay? All right. Wow, quite a few numbers, okay? Now, next one, okay? I want you to write down, I want you to write down your most favorite song. Now, I know we're in church. You're going you're gonna to say, well, does it have to be spiritual? It doesn't have to be spiritual. Just make it clean, all right? Uh, what is your favorite song, okay? What is your favorite song? But you got to write it down. You got to write it down, and I'll hum the Jeopardy theme while you do that. Just kidding, all right? So write down what your favorite song is. Got it written down? Don't make it really complicated and long, okay? If I don't hear yours, I apologize. It's hard with the echo in the room. But, uh, so give me a favorite song. What a beautiful name, all right? What a, and I got to, because I don't have much room, I got to kind of, BT stands for beautiful name, okay? What a beautiful name. All right, next. What? Lean on me, all right. Lean on me. Next. Highway to heaven. Is it stairway or highway? Stairway, right? Or is there another song called Highway? Is there a highway and a, and a stairway? Okay. Stairway to heaven. I don't know. I don't know what I just said. Right? Highway to heaven? You want me to put that one up here? I don't know. You're the rowdiest bunch I've had so far. What? I'll wear a prayer? All right. That helps us out, right? The hour of prayer. All right. Okay. Wow, you guys are getting excited now. I'll do one more. It is well with my soul, okay? And uh, after service, someone correct me on stairway and highway, all right? Uh, just kidding. Please don't, all right? It is well. It is well with my soul. Woo! Wow. All right. So here's the deal, okay? Um, I want you now... Oh, well, let's do this, okay? Let me tell you how many beans are in the jar. You ready for that? Okay? Remember the imaginary Corvette, all right? There are 399 jelly beans in the jar. Now, complicated math question for you. Which of these numbers is closest to 399? All right, very good. All right, so we got 365. That is the closest. But guess what? It doesn't get you the Corvette. Because... 399 is the absolute number. It's been tabulated several times. It's exact. And no matter how close you get, even if you are at 399 or 398.75, you don't get it because it's 399. It's absolute. Now, here we go. Next question. A little more complicated, okay? 
Which of these songs is the best song? Which, which of these songs is the closest to being right? All right? Now, you're saying, Pastor, that, that's a bad question to ask. Well, why is that a bad question to ask? Because you say it's all subjective, right? I mean, whoever put their song up there put their song that they like the most. So that song, therefore, is to them the best song. But you can't make that the best song for everybody else because we each have our own best song. And you're absolutely right. It is, it is a bad question, which one is the best? Because it's entirely subjective. There's no absolute song that has been put out there and we're told it is by law, it is by evidence, the most absolute best song. Now, here's the next question. You ready for this? When it comes to how you form and decide what you will believe for your faith, which method do you use? The jelly bean, exact numbers in the jar, or which is the best song? Which method do you use? The reality is, in our culture today, this is the preferred method. Why? It allows me to choose. It allows me to design what I believe. This is not the preferred method because this means I got to start with the truth regardless whether I like it or not. That's the bottom line. That's how many beans are in the jar. That's what the truth is. We prefer this side. And even as Christians, it is easy sometimes for us to waver into this kind of thinking, especially when everybody else around us is thinking that way. But you can't really know God if God ends up being everybody's favorite song. Because you have a different song, and you have a different song, and you have a different song, and I have a different song. And all our songs can't be the best. Tim Keller um, shares a story about a professor at NYU. And his name is Thomas Nagel. And I want to share what Keller writes about him because, because Thomas Nagel is incredibly honest. And I'll tell you what I mean in just a moment. Nagel is a philosopher at NYU. He's a very prominent uh, philosopher at NYU. And he's also an atheist agnostic, which I don't quite understand. I don't believe, but I'm not sure. I don't know if I believe. I don't, I don't know. But listen to this, because it's everything I just wrote up there, and it's Romans chapter 1. He talks about what he calls the fear of religion. He thinks a lot of his friends have it, and this is essentially what he says. I speak from experiences, Nagel, being strongly subject to this fear myself. Why? He says, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that I'm right in my belief is that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I, I appreciate his honesty. I don't want there to be a God, and I don't want the universe to be a universe that God's in charge of. Then he says, I doubt whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether or not there's a God. You can act like you're being objective and you're just looking at the arguments. Don't be ridiculous. You hear what he's saying? He's saying we all, we're all, we all coerce. We, we all manipulate things to kind of fit what we want. If there's a God, he says, and if there's a God like the God of the Bible, then I can't live the way I want. 
Nobody comes to this ideal neutral. We are not objective. Hear what Nagel is saying? He's saying, look, I don't want there to be a God. I really don't want there to be a God like the God of the Bible. And I don't want to live in a universe where the God of the Bible is in charge. I don't want that. The reason I don't want it is because if it is true that the God of the Bible is God and then he runs the universe the way he says he runs the universe, then it's like the beans in the jar. It doesn't matter what I want it to be. It doesn't matter what my hope and what my guess is and what my preference is. I'm bound to this. And I can't get around it. So the question for you and me is, do I believe in God? Yes, but do I believe in the God of the Scriptures? Do I believe in the God who's revealed himself in his word? And it's quite a gamble to say, I don't want to believe in that. Because the gamble is, am I saying I don't want to believe in that because I don't like that God and I don't like how he wants to run the universe? Or is it because I honestly, objectively can't believe that that God exists? Now, Paul tells us there's a lot of bad news of this whole situation. And I read the bad news a little bit earlier in verse 18. He said, the bad news is the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And by wrath, it's not talking about God having a, you know, a, a, an emotional fit of anger. God is holy. God, because he's pure and holy and there's no evil in him, God can't coexist with that which is evil. Therefore, his wrath must deal with it. He must judge it. And in essence, what God is saying, look, you've got the evidence, but you worship the evidence and not the one who's given it to you. You're all guilty and deserve my wrath and my punishment. Bad news. But there's good news. And the good news is found in two verses before the bad news. In verse 16 and verse 17, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the good news because it is the power. So what's the power of the gospel? The good news is the power of God that brings what? That brings salvation. How does salvation come? Well, the good news is about a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came to take God's wrath and judgment on himself so we could be forgiven. To everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Then in verse 17, he says, for in the gospel, there's the good news about Jesus, the righteousness of God, who is Christ, is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith. In other words, I can't earn salvation. I just, by faith, receive what God has done for me. From first to the last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So he has two verses, 16 and 17, of really good news. Then he descends into bad news all the way to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Then in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he picks up the good news again. And he, says, he says, good news is God loved you so much, he took his wrath out on his son. His son died your death, took your punishment. And now if you'll humble yourself before him, if you'll repent and put your faith in him, God treats you as though you never did one thing wrong. And that is the beautiful story of the gospel for you and for me. And that's how we know God. You see, I can, I can know that God is powerful and God is intelligent and God is great by looking at nature, but I will never know that God is loved till I meet Jesus and see who he is and what he did for me and did for you. And that's what brings us to the communion table today. 
this sacred meal that reminds us of God's love for you and me. And how he died for our sins so we could be forgiven. So we could be loved. So we could be in relationship with him. Do you join me as we pray? Fathers, we humble ourselves before you today. We thank you so much for the opportunity, God, to be reminded how you have clearly shouted to us that you are real. The evidence has been placed all around us. We see it in creation. But we know, Lord, our propensity is to not want to worship the creator, but the creation, because we can manipulate the creation to make it say what we want, to be what we want it to be. We ask you to forgive us for that, Lord. We ask you to forgive us if we've compromised, if we have in some way, Lord, begun to change our convictions because we want to fit in with the culture. We want, we want to be liked. We want to be approved. Lord, the evidence is in. We're not here by accident. There is a grand weaver who's woven together the fabric of the universe and wants to weave together the fabric of our lives. And that is you. We humble ourselves before you and we ask you to forgive us our sins. We thank you for offering us this meal today as a way to remember your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. How we long for him to be so real in our life and how we long for him to return to this earth again. Lord, in these next few moments as we partake, I pray that you would be present with us.